Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, on your notes there, just so you don't panic, uh, we're not going to get to the second half where it talks about uh, slaves and owners, and it really has an application for employees and employers. So as I go through this, don't panic and go, oh my word, we're going to be here all day. As I went through this, I didn't know how long I would take for the parent-child teaching, but uh, I'm going to focus on that today, and um, we'll get to the next one next week. We're going to continue in Ephesians 6, as Paul continues to discuss relationships, and he, he continues to apply this whole idea and concept of submission to three important areas of life. Uh, last week, we talked about it, men and women separately, about uh, in, how it applies in the marriage situation. Well, today we're going to look at how it applies in the uh, parent-child relationship, and then next week it's going to be as an employee and an employer and how God wants us to work that out in every dimension of our life. As we said last week, everybody is submitted to somebody or something. I mean, that's just life. If you want to have a, a healthy church, if you want to have a healthy family, a healthy city, a healthy world, there has to be levels of submission. And so we talked about that last week. And some have asked if we're going to put those separate things out uh, online. We probably will at some point. Um, but I, I, didn't want the, I didn't want the gals to use it against the guys, at least for a while. And uh, so we'll let it kind of marinate and soak in a little bit. Let me give you an axiom for Ephesians 5 and 6 as we've studied so far. I believe this is probably, if you can get this, this will really help you. If you want to be a better parent, then be a better partner. If you want to be a better partner, then be a better person. If I wanted to, to distill Ephesians 5 and 6 down, that's probably what I would say. Did you get that? If you want to be a better parent, then be a better partner. If you want to be a better partner, then be a better person. Because see, everything starts with the individual becoming all that we can become in Christ Jesus. And the section we're going to talk about today, loved ones, you really can't pull off 6, 1 through 4 if you're not working on becoming stronger in 5, 21 through 33. That's why God puts them in that order. You really can't function well in a home if the husband and wife aren't united and submitted to one another and working together. I told the men this last week, another thing. This isn't going to work very well either if you remove what we're talking about last week and today from all of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.1 starts off with this, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. That's our first mandate, is that we would imitate, we would be mimes of God. That's where it starts. And then if you read down in verse 18, we talked about this a few weeks ago. It says, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled, but be filled, be ye being filled ongoingly with God's spirit. Now, this is what a lot of people attempt to do. They get all these principles and they're good. They try and develop all those, these skills, and that's right. 
And then we try and force our marriage into it, or we try and force our child raising into it. And the problem is, is those really are, their principles and they're good, and God honors them, but sometimes we begin to treat them like a formula, and we think they should work. But they don't always work. And that's why so many Christ followers become frustrated in life is because, well, you know, man, I, I did all these things right with my wife or my husband. I did all these things right with my kid, and they're still a bunch of losers, you know? No, if you don't have, if you're not imitating God in your life, if you're not becoming more like Christ, and if you don't have this flow of the Spirit where you're walking with God and hearing His voice and sensing His presence, can I tell you something? All you're going to have is a bunch of principles and rules and formulas that are going to frustrate the heck out of you. And then you're going to shake your hand and go, God, how come it's not working? Because you've got to have God in the flow of it, loved ones. And don't take this, don't extract these passages out of their context. Now, I'm a firm believer, parents are like football quarterbacks. They get too much credit and too much blame when it comes to raising their kids. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I've seen kids come from awful home situations and turn out great, and I've seen kids come from great homes and go south, and I've seen homes where the siblings, the, the siblings come out of the same home, and one goes south and one goes north. They have the same parents, same home, same everything. Well, what is it? Well, I, I really believe this. Having adopted two kids, I'm really convinced that our nature is much stronger than our nurturing. Remember that kind of what the Bible calls depravity, that sinfulness that we're born with. Each one of us has a different DNA, a human code that God works with or that God has deposited in us and how we develop. You can, a lot of times, listen, I, I believe nurturing is so critical. But there's some people you just can't nurture out of them. They've got to have a touch of God upon them. Because their nature is, 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 is so anti-God and so rebellious. Well, I want to give, I think, a key transition that parents have to make, have to understand and make, um, that they really don't understand this, usually until it's too late, or nobody's ever talked to them about it, nobody ever talked to me about it, but it's the transition from power to authority. See, power is, it's, a, it's, it's positionally done. Uh, it, it kind of is a coercive will to force others to yield to another's wishes, usually through force or kind of being dictatorial. It's all based on position. Have you noticed, we, we, we begin life as parents. And again, we don't cognitively put all of this together. <clears throat> but we, we, we start off with this little baby. And then they get a little older. Pretty soon they turn two and three, and they start running around, and, and they get into mischief. And what do we do? Hey, Derwin, stop! You know? And we kind of get in their face, and then they keep going, and we, you know, we do other discipline. And who, have you noticed how big we are, how loud we can be, how good we can think? Yeah. And so, and, and so during their years from birth to probably 10, 11, and 12, you know, we just tower over them and scare them, cause fear in most of our kids. 
And see, all during that time, a lot of time that's built on power. We coerce, we force our will on them to do what's right. And what parents don't understand, if we haven't switched, if we haven't moved to authority versus power, power will ultimately probably produce rebellion. So what's authority? Well, authority is relational. Oftentimes in the Bible, it's used by a ruler who uses his authority to steward over and to take care of people, to work with them, to shape them, to help control them in the right direction. Authority has to do with giving needed structure to a person's life because this person, this authority over them, has their best interests at heart. Now hear me. Power is based on position. Authority is based on relationship and discipline. You read the Gospels, and you talk about, you read about Jesus, and this is what he's always doing. And Jesus spoke with authority. Jesus moved with authority. Why? Because that's how he was always relating to the people around him. Paul who wrote the book of Ephesians, uh, he wrote 2 Corinthians uh, to a church in Corinth. And he was bringing correction to them. And as he brought correction to them, at the end, he says these in two places. In chapter 10, uh, excuse me, chapter 12 and chapter 13, he says these very powerful words. He says, listen, God has given me authority. And I am going to use it to build you up, not tear you down. A God-given thing. If you're a parent in this room, loved ones, you have a God-given authority. And like Paul, he says, I want you to use it to build your kids up, not beat them down. And that's why this whole power thing, because see, when our kids get older, when they start hitting those teen years, if we haven't learned to move from power to authority, can I tell you what it becomes? Power on power. And that's why we struggle so much with our kids. We get so frustrated with them because we're no longer moving in authority, but we're just like two rams going at it. And they're not going to back down and respond because they're not mature enough. And if you begin to understand that simple concept, uh, it'll get get a lot easier. I'm not going to say it'll get a lot easier. It'll just get better over time because you won't blow up the relational bridge because you're always powering up and amping up on your kids. And saying, by God, I'm going to win this thing no matter what. Really? Do you, do, you, do you really win? Well, let's look at what the scripture says here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, we have a number of teenagers here. I don't know if they a lot of times come to second service. But if you're a teenager or a child in here, um, just happen to be in here, this is an important word for you because it's written to you. Obey your parents. Why? Because it's right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first of the commandments, with a promise that it may go well with your life and you will have a long life ahead. The rabbis talked, it wasn't necessarily the length of years, but it was the quality of years. That if you were a person who submitted to and lived under the the guidance of your parents, a godly parents, then the quality of your life would be better. 
in verse 4 says, And fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Now, the specific duty of children is spelled out here. It is obey your parents. Now, Paul's appeal is from the Decalogue, or the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, where it's one of the big ten. Now, hear me. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't say, hey, parents, make your kids obey? Because I don't think we can do that. I, I, I don't even know if we're supposed to make them obey. This is written to children when they probably would have been in an age where they would have heard it. The, the word child here, or children, in the original language is technon, and it refers to anyone of any age who was living in the parents' home, whether you're 9, 19, 29, or 49. If you were in your parents' home, this was a word from the Lord for you, for them. Obey them. Well, yeah, but I'm 39. I want to do what I want. Are you in your parents' home? Well, then follow their rules. I don't know about you, but I'm part of a, I've had part of the boomerang generation. You know, the kids that always come back a few times. Hasn't happened for a few years. <laughs> but, but, but it's happened enough. And whenever they come back, we say, okay, here are the six rules. And it's basically the six rules that they grew up with. If you want to come home, here it is. Well, but dad, man, I'm, I'm 24 now. Here are the rules. And you have the right to do that. Secondly, Paul assumes, Paul assumes that the child or the children would be in church when they heard this. And this letter was written to Ephesus. Paul assumed that the children would be in church in Ephesus. And then he also knew that this letter would go around to the churches in Asia Minor. And it would be read in churches. And so he is speaking directly to children in the churches. Now, I have to add this. When I was young and, and smarter and easier going, I probably wouldn't have said this when I first got here 20 years ago. But I will say it now because I've seen families through the years. This is experience. There are exceptions, obviously. I, I want to ask you do you, do you, do you give your kids the choice of church? Because they whine, they howl, oh, I can't go, I don't like it. I don't want to go. I stayed out late. Do you, do you give them the choice? I hear people say all the time, well, you know, man, when I grew up, my mom and dad, they made me, they forced me. We had to go Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, prayer meeting, whatever, potlucks. Aren't you glad we don't do all those? We don't do that much anymore. But my question is this, do you give them the choice? Because the follow-up question is this. There's going to come a time as your kids get older. If they don't engage spiritually with the living God, which answer do you want to have to respond to? Wow. I'm sure glad I at least did my parental part and exposed them to the life of God. And what they did with it now is totally between them and God. Or man, I think I really missed the boat. My kids are far from God, and I wish I would have been more assertive. 
See, that, th- th- that's what happens. Because I don't think most people anymore, there's probably a few churches that do it, but I know most of the Creeksiders. But, you know, it's not like we force it. You just say, here's our values. This is what we do as a family. It's one of my six things. Go to church. I can't imagine a parent, I mean, it probably happens once in a while, but I can't imagine a parent going up to Durwood. Durwood, how are you doing today? Oh, I think I just want to stay home. I don't want to go to school. I don't got my homework done. You know what? I just want to play a little Nintendo. Oh, no, you're going to go. No, 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 no. I want to play Nintendo. Okay, Derwood. I'll call for you. You just go over on the little couch and just go play your Nintendo. You wouldn't do that with school, would you? And yet, don't we believe that the most important thing in a person's life ultimately I mean, beyond everything is their faith in Jesus Christ because that's what has to deal with their eternal destiny. See, and this is why I think Paul writes to dads, whatever dad doesn't make a priority, whatever dad is inconsistent in, well, the kids are going to pick up on. That's why I love about Creekside. We have a lot of men that go here. I mean, men's men. Because I understand this. When you get the man, you get the family. Because the kids will follow the man. But if the dad stays home and he's, you know, and he's popping a Pabst and he's sitting there watching the Packers, well, you know, that's what a kid's going to want to do. Dads, I've seen families here. I'm <laughs> that they're, oh, Pastor, my kids don't want to come to church. And now let me get this straight. Your kids don't want to come to church, but I only see you here like once a month. And in the summer when you're boating and skiing and, you know, doing all this, I don't ever see you. And then you want to start back up. And listen, you know me, I'm all for vacations, and I don't expect anyone to be here every time the doors open. I'm not talking about that, but we're talking about a general disposition that this is important for growth and moving forward in the life of Christ. Dads, you have a role. As parents, do you have rules and values and guidelines for your family that are communicated? That because they live in the home, they fit into you and your agenda, not you fitting into their agenda. Now, while I believe obedience is critical, but this is written to the child, not the parent. I'm not sure how you can make it happen. I think the idea is more that you lead kids into it. I want to submit this. How does Jesus, our Lord, work with you in obedience? What does he do with you whereby obedience becomes your choice? Yeah, we have all of the commands and precepts and principles, but you don't have somebody over you with a big spanking hovering over you, screaming at you, taking away your meals or whatever else. You know what I mean? You just got to do it. Well, what causes you to respond in obedience? This is what I'm learning, I think. I wish I had kids again, but I got a grandson. But if I understand why I respond to Jesus and his commands, I can begin to bring that into the relationship that I have with my kids. What motivates me to obey? Then I can begin to help my kids to move 
in obedience as well. Not because I'm standing over them, but because their heart, there's a gravitational pull toward believing and trusting what we're doing. And because I've communicated it. If you can grow and understand how Jesus leads you into obedience, cultivate that in your family. And can I tell you, get all the Dobson's books, read them. Whoever else is popular now. But can I tell you something else? Your kids aren't Dobson's kids. And don't try and think that because it worked for Dobson or some other great person, that it's going to work for you and your family and your kids the same way. How many of you think you've been spanked by the Lord? Chastised? Discipline? Raise your hand. Did anybody think that, that you've just kind of like, you know, I know God's kind of done that. Yeah, not many of us. Okay. Um, I would probably have raised my hand before. I think I have been a couple of times. But what I'm realizing, I think, is God doesn't discipline and chastise or spiritually spank as much as I used to think. I think what is really happening in our lives, loved ones, is that we're experiencing consequential punishment. It simply flows. It's the uh, reaction to the actions that we take that we know are wrong, but we do it anyway. And so I, I always say this. See, God's not up there with a bony finger, you know, ticked at you, ready to kind of zap you. He says, you're going to go your way. You're going to make the choice to do this, that, or the other. On the basis of that, you're either going to have a blessed life or you're going to have a difficult life. I'm here with you. And that's the powerful thing about God is that when we make those bad choices, when we are experiencing the actions, to, uh, the reactions to the actions that we take, the consequences, you know what? He never rejects us. He's right there. And that's what's so powerful about being a parent. Now, I find it interesting in a story in 2 Samuel chapter 24 where God intercepts, and I believe one of the clear times that he disciplines one of his, his men, David, we see what he does. He goes to David in, in chapter, uh, 20, uh, chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. David had numbered Israel, the army, and he wasn't supposed to. That was a no-no. It was disobedience. And it could have caused him and the rest of the family, I mean, the rest of the nation, serious problems. But God does this in his fatherly love to chastise him. He steps in and he goes to David. Okay, David, you did this. Now we're going to deal with it. And he begins to chastise him. You know what he does, though? He gives him three options. You can do this, you can do this, or you can do this. You make the call. He doesn't just go in and nuke him. This is important to hear, loved ones, whether you're dealing with your kids. Because we have a tendency to react to everything instead of helping step in and lead them into the right decisions. And for you and I, God is not the author of our pain, our difficult times, our feelings that we experience that are so hard. Can I tell you? You are. I am. Does God spank, chastise? Sure, but probably less than what we think. So what's a parent's duty? Well, 
Paul here gives a positive and a negative. He says, fathers, don't provoke to or exasperate, but bring them up in. Interesting, he notes fathers and not mothers. It could be for the mother that, well, uh, I know for Trina, it was so natural for her to care about our boys, and she would do whatever she could for them no matter what. She was nurturing little boys. I was trying to raise men. And they were only two years old, you know? And so that that adds a little bit of tension. But I believe Paul is setting in place here the leadership of the father to lead the family and the children. There's a lot of frustrated moms who have to take up and take on the leadership of the father to lead the family, to discipline the children, and a lot of frustrated moms. I want to tell you guys, you are the one that needs to step up and engage and lead. Don't be passive and leave all the hard stuff to your bride. Now, Paul is doing some corrective things here, trying to change their thinking, because during the time of this writing in the Roman Empire, there was this thing called the Patris uh, potestas, and it meant the father's power. At that time, the father had all power. He could accept or reject his kids. He had absolute control over his children. He could put chains on them and work them in the field all day. He could punish them at will. He could actually execute a death sentence against them. Totally abused the children and the wife. I think what Paul is saying here in our, don't be stupid. Don't allow your wrath and your anger to be the seed that is planted in your kids and that ignites the flames of their heart in your home and in the hearts of your children. Colossians 3.21, Paul amplifies this a little more, and he says what? Lest they be discouraged. See, this can be done with loading them down with unrealistic expectations, being really harsh with them, overly critical, maybe even trying to live through them. Well, you know, I was a jock. I want them to be a jock. You know, I was an academician. I want them to excel in academics. Whatever it is. And we begin to, now listen, those things are good. Encourage your kids in them. Get them involved. Just don't drive them. And make sure that it's their desires that you're cultivating and not your own. See, mom and dad, wise is the parent who understands that children are not to be molded, but they're to be unfolded. That God has placed in them something of his life and his design that may be totally different from yours. And what he wants you to do is to, well, let this flower blossom. Let it unfold day after day. And the only way you can do that is if you're paying attention to what they're saying, to their heart's desires, what they're, what's pulling them toward things, what, what activities they like, not what you force them to do. And then he says, bring them up in the training or the nurturing. The word nourish here, training, it's a, it's a very embracing word. It's where your actions embrace them and shape them. Do they see what you say to do? And then whatever you say to do, do you walk in them? Or is it just, 
do as I say, not as I do. Are you honest all the time when people call or are you, do they see you kind of fudging stuff here and there? Are you living the life before them that can train them? As you go through the day, you take opportunities because this really is the idea of Deuteronomy 6 through 9 where um, Moses is giving his last testament and call to the people of Israel. And he says, when your kids get up, talk to them, teach them. When they go down, talk to them, teach them throughout the whole day. And he's not sitting there saying, download the Bible on them. He's saying, make it real, make it relevant. Maybe you're driving by a serious accident. What can you do there? You know, son, honey, let's, let's just pray for those people. Obviously, there's somebody hurt. You see something. Maybe a clerk gives you $5 extra. I mean, you know, you don't make a big show out of it, but make sure your kid sees you. Go, hey, son, come here. I got a, they gave me five bucks too much, and you give it back. See, that's what it's about. It's not, it's not about downloading the scriptures to them. It's about teaching them life values. And then you bring it back and say, you know, that's what God would want us to do. Son, I sure hope you learned that. And I want you to learn that from me. Then he says in the instruction and admonition, it's the idea of education. Now get this, the focus here is not behavior modification because that's where most of us live. See, most of both parents, even in Christianity, I'm sorry, but we want to know how to keep our kids under control. And that's important. But we focus on behavior modification. But the idea in this text is to work with their mind and their thinking. It's to work with what is going on in their mind and their heart that is producing the wrong behaviors. Because if you don't deal with that, you'll simply produce robots. Yeah, we're going to work with behavior, but it's so easy to focus on that and demand behavior without helping to shape our kids' minds. The Bible teaches us over and over, renew your minds. Because if you don't renew your minds, your behavior will never change. As a man thinks, so is he. Now let me crowd you. As parents, part of the problem is our own lives. Can I tell you something? It is hard to administer discipline if you're not disciplined. It's hard to get your children to really be people of growing character and and change if you're not growing in character and changing. If your kids can't see that taking place in you, then you're going to have a real hard time communicating to, to that to them. And with all of our technology, phones, games, computers, busyness, iPhones, iPads, whatever, it's really hard to make this happen at home unless as a dad you lead and you're really intentional about it. But the home is the boot camp for life. It's the place where your children are going to learn their values. And hopefully, listen, hopefully they're going to learn to think logically. This is right. This is wrong. This could be all right, but this is better. And this is why. They're going to be able to think biblically with a worldview. 
They're not going to hear about prejudice. They're not going to hear about <laughs> this color over here or <laughs> this person over here. That's a worldview that you as a dad and a mom are going to instill in them. And when you joke about this and joke about that, that gets seated in their little hearts and in their little cranium. And we've got to shape their minds with an understanding of God is for everybody. Let me do a fly. I've got to get through this. Let me uh, just quickly. I want to talk about parenting styles. We all do these at times, but I want you to consider what is your pattern. First of all, there's the neglective and abusive parents. They lack support for or control of their children because they're often more concerned with their own life and what's going on there. Children become a hindrance. You know, they're to be seen and not heard. Uh, This parent would say something like this, hey, do it yourself, I'm busy, I've got work to do, that's your problem. And that would almost be their attitude. These parents tend to develop great insecurity in their children because the parents are so unpredictable and undependable. They're They're seldom there. And this teaches the child, they aren't worth much. They don't have great value. Or if there's abuse, the harshness and the neglect tends to wound the spirit of the child, resulting in issues later due to the lack of self-worth, self-esteem. These are the kind of kids that are going to begin to look for love in all the wrong places. How about authoritarian parents? Usually overly high, strict. They have high expectations and too high standards. Yet without the warmth, the nurturing, and the caring support that is critical to a child's healthy development. They have rigid rules with little explanation. When broken, punishment is swift. They don't, they don't discipline, which has the ideal of discipling through. It is just punitive and oftentimes done from anger. A, a lot of religious homes live there. And it's during the adolescent and teen years that we begin to push our kids over the edge instead of helping them navigate through this volatile period of life because demands and the expectations are so high. Do you remember Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver? Remember that guy? Yes, Mrs. Cleaver. And then he goes upstairs. Hey, Beaver, you little creep. Uh, that's, the kind of, uh, that's the kind of kid that this parent produces. He's one way with the parent, but he's another way with other people and when he's out in the world. And because they've never been given the opportunity to think, they've never been allowed to make any decisions when they face pressures of life, the enemy of their soul brings things to them. Well, they've had every decision made for them and every authoritative word spoke to them has told them what to do. They fall because they don't know what to do because they haven't learned to think logically, biblically. Parents would say things like this. You don't need a reason. I said so. No kid of mine is going to be a goof off or a screw up. Hey, I'm calling the shots here. Now, hear me. There's times those things need to be said. But there's also a lot of times where there needs to be communication behind the values and the things that are being spoken. Can I tell you what the biggest issue with this parent is? is often they're just more concerned about how they look 
and how their kids reflect on them instead of understanding and helping the kids to make their own choices. And that's why it's such a big problem in churches. What are, pro- what are people going to think if I have a problem with my kid? I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad parent. I'm, I'm, I'm bad. <laughs> I remember when I, uh, it was in March of, I don't know, 1999, and I stood up here and I told you some of the problems we were having with Joel. And... Um, in, in a biblical context. And I had a family come up to me and said, you know what? We didn't come here to hear that. And they left. Can I tell you what their problem is? I mean, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but this is the truth. They're, they're, they're religious. Because they couldn't handle a pastor who was struggling with a son and that could be open about it. Why would I want to hide that from you? I was doing the best I could. And that's how we have to live, in the open. Because then we can get help, we can get support. And what I love about this church during that time is my kids still say how much you supported him and loved him and accepted him. And he's doing good today. Permissive parents. These parents give in, they, uh, they, they, they buckle to the kids' demands. There's no consistent or firm limits communicated or consistently applied. They're the all you need is love. They'll say things like this. Uh, honey, please don't cry or get angry. You'll cause a scene. Oh, I hate to see you under such stress. You can stay home. I'll call for you. Heather, it's a school night, dear. Now it's 1130. Would you like to go to bed now or when your next favorite TV show is over? We don't want to cramp your style. And really what they're saying is we don't want to deal with the fit that you're about to throw. Would you just go to bed in the next hour or so if you don't mind? That's a permissive parent. In our times, parents have become insecure and abdicated their authority. You hear people say, let them be free. Don't want to bend their little personalities. Our son, Joel, who I was just talking about, it was, his wife was pregnant. And we were sitting at the kitchen table, and he goes, well, well you know, Dad, I'm just going to let this kid be really free. I'm, I'm just going to let him kind of experience the world. Well, <laughs> it wasn't too long after Isaac was born. It was so sweet. Joel is an incredible dad. But can I tell you what Joel does? He's very patient, very quiet, but very, son, this is what you need to do and why. There is no free spirit going on there. (laughs) And I think you kind of learn that uh, for those of us who maybe have had some difficult times with our kids, you really see what you taught them come out when they have kids. Eric Erickson, one of the leading figures in the field of human development, noted that children can become emotionally disturbed and unstable when they possess power they cannot responsibly handle. They become frustrated when they find themselves in control of their lives and ultimately in control of their parents. Every one of us is born in iniquity and theologically depraved. 
and that needs to be shaped. It needs to be touched. It needs to be broken. Because if it doesn't, if it doesn't get changed by our parenting and by God himself, you'll just become a bigger child who demands. You want to know if you're a permissive parent, overly permissive? Go to your child and ask them to do something they don't normally do. See what they do. Or go tell them no. No. Those two things are great indicators of where your kids are. I'm not talking about just, you know, but you know, I'm talking about throw a hissy fit. You're not parenting friends to be loved and liked by your kids. You're parenting to train them how to live on earth successfully and heaven eternally. How about authority? Well, this is what we're talking about. These parents tend to establish clear limits and attainable standards that are understood as consistently as possible. They're applied teaching them and living them out in the home over time. These parents teach authority that it comes from God and the ultimate authority in life attitudes are shaped by their belief in God and who he is in his word. They would respond to Heather this way. Heather, darling, you know that we've agreed that your bedtime is 9 o'clock. I know you're in the middle of the show. There's a couple of commercials left, and you still need to get your teeth brushed before you go to bed and take care of your stuff. Now, with 15 minutes to go, would you like to go to bed at 9 o'clock on your own? Would you like for Daddy to carry you up, or would you like for me to ricochet you off the wall up the stairs? <laughs> um, would you say the message is the same? But see, you're bringing them in. You just say, hey, okay. You know, and that way at 9 o'clock, you're not having this big fight. They're learning. You're training them to think. And then at 9 o'clock, you're not, you're not ramping up and powering up on them. But you're teaching them what authority is. This is what we said. Now you need to do it. Listen, these parents don't have it all together, but they don't have to go toe-to-toe with their kids. They don't have to put everything into a win-lose situation. They move to build their authority, thereby building their children. If Buford doesn't like broccoli and he won't even eat a small portion, hello, then take it away from him and say, Buford, I understand. I didn't like broccoli either. So we're going to put this away. And you're done eating now, but you're going to have this tomorrow morning at breakfast. <laughs> oh, pastor. Oh, well, if you didn't eat, oh, he might, you know. Well, call your pediatrician. Ask if your kid can miss one meal. <laughs> See, you want to teach him. You don't want to just power up on him. Okay. Hey, listen, there's nothing more guilt-wrenching than gut-wrenching and guilt-inducing than giving, excuse me, and the joy that comes from parenting is there. There's not a person in this room, if you've had kids, you don't feel guilty at times. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. Most of us here are giving us our best shot. Keep it up, but keep growing at it. Help one another. Be patient. Some say, well, pastor, I've made some really big mistakes and my kids are grown now. So what? 
Humble yourself. Admit it. Go to them. Or if your kids are still in the house, say, you know what, kids? Come in here. Dad did it wrong. I'm sorry. Forgive me. There's a new sheriff in town. And we're going to do it differently. It's never too late to start doing what's right. Three things. Dad, love your wife. Your kids will learn more about love by how you love her than even how you love them. I talked about that with the men last week. Number two, spend quality and quantity time with your kids. And dads, be a good role model. Have the courage to stand up. Have the, have the strength of character to be consistent, to be humble, and to be integrous. This is what makes you a great dad. And you don't have to be the greatest dad. Just be a growing dad. Amen?